Chapter One, Part Two of the Stones of Venice, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Stones of Venice, Volume One, by John Ruskin. Chapter One, The Quarry, Part Two. Paragraph 15. Such is the evidence of painting. To collect that of architecture will be our task through many a page to come, but I must here give a general idea of its heads. Philippe de Comagnens, writing of its entry into Venice in 1495, says, Chacun me fait soir au milieu de ces deux ambassadeurs, qui est l'honneur d'Italie que d'être au milieu, et me menèrent au long de la grand rue, qu'ils appellent le canal grand, et est bien large. Les galets y passent à travers, et y est vent navire de quatre cents tonneaux ou plus près des maisons, et est la plus belle rue que je crois qui soit en tout le monde. C'est la plus triomphante cité que j'ai jamais vue, et qui fait plus d'honneur à ambassadeurs et étrangers, et qui plus sagement se gouverne, et où le service de Dieu est le plus solennellement fait, et encore qu'il peut y avoir bien d'autres fautes, si je crois que Dieu les a en aide pour la révérence qu'ils portent au service de l'Église. Paragraph 16 This passage is of particular interest for two reasons. First, observe the impression of Comayans respecting the religion of Venice, of which, as I have above said, the forms still remained with some glimmerings of life in them, and were the evidence of what that real life had been in former times. But observe, secondly, the impression instantly made on Comayans' mind by the distinction between the elder palaces and those built within this last hundred years, which all have their fronts of white marble brought from Istria a hundred miles away, and besides many a large piece of porphyry and serpentine upon their fronts. On the opposite page I have given two of the ornaments of the palaces which so struck the French ambassador. He was right in his notice of the distinction. There had indeed come a change over Venetian architecture in the fifteenth century, and a change of some importance to us moderns, we English owe to it our St. Paul's Cathedral, and Europe, in general, owes to it the utter degradation or destruction of her schools of architecture, never since revived. But that the reader may understand this, it is necessary that he should have some general idea of the connection of the architecture of Venice with that of the rest of Europe, from its origin forwards. Paragraph 17. All European architecture, bad and good, old and new, is derived from Greece through Rome and colored and perfected from the east. The history of architecture is nothing but the tracing of the various modes and directions of this derivation. Understand this once and for all. If you hold fast this great connecting clue, you may string all the types of successive architectural invention upon it like so many beads. The Doric and the Corinthian orders are the roots, the one of all Romanesque massy capital buildings, Norman, Lombard, Byzantine, and what else you can name of the kind, and the Corinthian of all Gothic, Early English, French, German, and Tuscan. Now observe, those old Greeks gave the shaft, Rome gave the arch, the Arabs pointed and foliated the arch. The shaft and arch, the framework and strength of architecture, are from the race of Yebeth, the spirituality and sanctity of it from Ishmael, Abraham, and Shem. Paragraph 18. There is high probability that the Greek received his shaft system from Egypt, but I do not care to keep this earlier derivation in the mind of the reader. It is only necessary that he should be able to refer to a fixed point of origin when the form of the shaft was first perfected. 
but it may be incidentally observed that if the Greeks did indeed receive their dwarf from Egypt, then the three families of the earth have each contributed their part to its noblest architecture, and Ham, the servants of the others, furnishes the sustaining or bearing member, the shaft, Yebeth, the arch, Shem, the spiritualization of both. Paragraph 19. I have said that the two orders, Doric and Corinthian, are the roots of all European architecture. You have, perhaps, heard of five orders, but there are only two real orders, and there never can be any more until doomsday. On one of these orders the ornament is convex. Those are Doric, Norman, and what else you recollect of the kind. On the other, the ornament is concave. These are the Corinthian, early English, decorated, and what else you recollect of that kind. The transitional form, in which the ornamental line is straight, is the center or root of both. All other orders are variety of those, or phantasms and grotesques altogether indefinite in number and species. Paragraph 20. This Greek architecture, then, with its two orders, was clumsily copied and varied by the Romans with no particular result until they began to bring the arch into extensive practical service, except only that the Doric capital was spoiled in endeavors to mend it, and the Corinthian much varied and enriched with fanciful, and often very beautiful, imagery. And in this state of things came Christianity, seized upon the arch as her own, decorated it, and delighted in it, invented a new Doric capital to replace the spoiled Roman one, and all over the Roman Empire set to work, with such materials as were nearest to hand, to express and adorn herself as best she could. This Roman Christian architecture is the exact expression of the Christianity of the time, very fervid and beautiful, but very imperfect, in many respects ignorant, and yet radiant with a strong childlike light of imagination, which flames up under Constantine, illumines all the shores of the Bosphorus and the Aegean and the Adriatic Sea, and then gradually, as the people give themselves up to idolatry, becomes corpse-like. The architecture sinks into a settled form, a strange, gilded, and embalmed repose, it with the religion it expressed, and so would have remained forever, and does remain, where its languor has been undisturbed. Footnote. The reader will find the weak points of Byzantine architecture shrewdly seized and exquisitely sketched in the opening chapter of the most delightful book of travels I ever opened, Curzon's Monasteries of the Levant. End footnote. But rough wakening was ordained for it. Paragraph 21. This Christian art of the declining empire is divided into two great branches, western and eastern, one centered at Rome, the other at Byzantium, of which the one is the early Christian Romanesque, properly so called, and the other, carried to higher imaginative perfection by Greek workmen, is distinguished from it as Byzantine. But I wish the reader, for the present, to class these two branches of art together in his mind, they being, in points of main importance, the same. That is to say, both of them a true continuance and sequence of the art of old Rome itself, flowing uninterruptedly down from the fountainhead, and entrusted always to the best workmen who could be found, Latins in Italy, and Greeks in Greece, and thus both branches may be ranged under the general term of Christian Romanesque, an architecture which had lost the refinement of pagan art in the degradation of the empire, but which was elevated by Christianity to higher aims, and by the fancy of the Greek workmen endowed with brighter forms. And this art, the reader may conceive, is extending in its various branches all over the central provinces of the empire, taking aspects more or less refined according to its proximity to the seats of government, dependent for all its power on the vigor and freshness of the religion which animated it, and as that vigor and purity departed, losing its own vitality, and sinking into nerveless rest, not deprived of its beauty, but benumbed and incapable of advance or change. Paragraph 22. Meantime, there had been preparation for its renewal. 
while in Rome and Constantinople, and in the districts under their immediate influence, this Roman art of pure descent was practiced in all its refinement, an impure form of it, a patois of Romanesque, was carried by inferior workmen into distant provinces, and still ruder imitations of this patois were executed by the barbarous nations on the skirts of the empire. But these barbarous nations were in the strength of their youth, and while in the center of Europe, a refined and purely descended art was sinking into graceful formalism, on its confines a barbarous and borrowed art was organizing itself into strength and consistency. The reader must therefore consider the history of the work of the period as broadly divided into two great heads, the one embracing the elaborately languid succession of the Christian art of Rome, and the other, the imitations of it executed by nations in every conceivable phase of early organization, on the edges of the empire, or included in its now merely nominal extent. Paragraph 23. Some of the barbaric nations were, of course, not susceptible of this influence, and when they burst over the Alps, appear, like the Huns, as scourges only, or mix, as the Ostrogoths, with the enervated Italians, and give physical strength to the mass with which they mingle, without materially affecting its intellectual character. But others, both south and north of the empire, had felt its influence, back to the beach of the Indian Ocean on the one hand, and to the ice creeks of the North Sea on the other. On the north and west, the influence was of the Latins, on the south and east, of the Greeks. Two nations, preeminent above all the rest, represent to us the force of derived mind on either side. As the central power is eclipsed, the orbs of reflected light gather into their fullness, and when sensuality and idolatry had done their work, and the religion of the empire was laid asleep in a glittering sepulchre, the living light rose upon both horizons, and the fierce swords of the Lombard and the Arab were shaken over its golden paralysis. Paragraph 24. The work of the Lombard was to give hardihood and system to the enervated body and enfeebled mind of Christendom. That of the Arab was to punish idolatry and to proclaim the spirituality of worship. The Lombard covered every church which he built with the sculptured representations of bodily exercises, hunting, and war. The Arab banished all imagination of creature from his temples, and proclaimed from the minarets, There is no God but God. Opposite in their character and mission, alike in their magnificence of energy, they came from the north and from the south, the glacial torrent and the lava stream. They met and contended over the wreck of the Roman Empire, and the very center of the struggle, the point of pause for both, the dead water of the opposite eddies, charged with embayed fragments of the Roman wreck, is Venice. The ducal palace of Venice contains the three elements in exactly equal proportions, the Roman, Lombard, and Arab. It is the central building of the world. Paragraph 25. The reader will now begin to understand something of the importance of the study of the edifices of a city which includes, within the circuit of some seven or eight miles, the field of contest between the three preeminent architectures of the world, each architecture expressing a condition of religion, each an erroneous condition, yet necessary to the correction of the others, and corrected by them. Paragraph 26. It will be part of my endeavor, in the following work, to mark the various modes in which the northern and southern architectures were developed from the Roman. Here I must pause only to name the distinguishing characteristics of the great families. The Christian Roman and Byzantine work is round-arched, with single and well-proportioned shafts, capitals imitated from classical Roman, moldings more or less so, and large surfaces of walls entirely covered with imagery, mosaic, and paintings, whether of scriptural history or of sacred symbols. The Arab school is at first the same in its principal features, the Byzantine workmen being employed by the caliphs, but the Arab rapidly introduces characters half Peloponnesian, half Egyptian into the shafts and capitals. In his intense love of excitement, he points the arch, 
and writhes it into extravagant foliations, he banishes the animal imagery and invents an ornamentation of his own, called arabesque, to replace it. This not being adapted for covering large surfaces, he concentrates it on features of interest, and bars his surfaces with horizontal lines of color, the expression of the level of the desert. He retains the dome, and adds the minaret. All is done with exquisite refinement. Paragraph 27. The changes effected by the Lombard are more curious still, for they are in the anatomy of the building more than in its decoration. The Lombard architecture represents, as I said, the whole of that of the northern barbaric nations, and this, I believe, was, at first, an imitation in wood of the Christian Roman churches or basilicas. Without staying to examine the whole structure of basilica, the reader will easily understand thus much of it, that it had a nave and two aisles, the nave much higher than the aisles, that the nave was separated from the aisles by rows of shafts, which supported, above, large spaces of flat or dead wall, rising above the aisles and forming the upper part of the nave, now called the chaustery, which had a gabled wooden roof. These high dead walls were, in Roman work, built of stone, but in the wooden work of the north they must necessarily have been made of horizontal boards or timbers attached to uprights on the top of the nave pillars, which were themselves also of wood. Now these uprights were necessarily thicker than the rest of the timbers, and formed vertical square pilasters above the nave piers. As Christianity extended, and civilization increased, these wooden structures were changed into stone, but they were literally petrified, retaining the form which had been made necessary by their being of wood. The upright pilaster above the nave pier remains in the stone edifice, and is the first form of the great distinctive feature of northern architecture, the vaulting shaft. In that form, the Lombards brought it into Italy in the 7th century, and it remains to this day in San Ambrogio of Milan, and St. Michel of Pavia. Paragraph 28. When the vaulting shaft was introduced in the celestial walls, additional members were added for its support to the nave piers. Perhaps two or three pine trunks, used for a single pillar, gave the first idea of the grouped shaft. Be that as it may, the arrangement of the nave pier in the form of a cross accompanies the superposition of the vaulting shaft, together with corresponding grouping of minor shafts in doorways and apertures of windows. Thus, the whole body of the northern architecture, represented by that of the Lombards, may be described as rough but majestic work, round-arched, with grouped shafts, added vaulting shafts, and endless imagery of active life and fantastic superstitions. Paragraph 29. The glacial stream of the Lombards, and the following one of the Normans, left their erratic blocks wherever they had flowed, but without influencing, I think, the southern nations beyond the sphere of their own presence. But the lava stream of the Arab, even after it ceased to flow, warmed the whole of the northern air, and the history of Gothic architecture is the history of the refinement and spiritualism of northern work under its influence. The noblest buildings of the world, the Pazan Romanesque, Tuscan, Gotoski, Gothic, and Veronese, Gothic, are those of the Lombard schools themselves, under its close and direct influence. The various Gothics of the north are the original forms of the architecture which the Lombards brought into Italy, changing under the less direct influence of the Arab. Paragraph 30. Understanding thus much of the formation of the great European styles, we shall have no difficulty in tracing the succession of architectures in Venice herself. From what I said of the central character of Venetian art, the reader is not, of course, to conclude that the Roman, Northern, and Arabian elements met together and contended for the mastery at the same period. The earliest element was the pure Christian Roman, but a few, if any, remains of this art exist in Venice for the present city was in the earliest times only one of many settlements formed on the chain of marshy islands which extend from the mouths of the Isonzo to those of the Adige, and it was not until the beginning of the ninth century 
that it became the seat of government, while the Cathedral of Torcello, though Christian Roman in general form, was rebuilt in the 11th century, and shows evidence of the Byzantine workmanship in many of its details. This cathedral, however, with the Church of Santa Fosca in Torcello, San Guillermo di Ortale at Venice, and the Crypt of St. Mark's, forms a distinct group of buildings in which the Byzantine influence is exceedingly slight, and which is probably very sufficiently representative of the earliest architecture on the islands. Paragraph 31. The ducal residence was removed to Venice in 809, and the body of St. Mark's was brought from Alexandria twenty years later. The first church of St. Mark's was, doubtless, built in imitation of that destroyed at Alexandria, and from which the relics of the saint had been obtained. During the ninth, 10th, and 11th centuries, the architecture of Venice seems to have been formed on the same model, and is almost identical with that of Cairo under the Caliphs, it being quite immaterial whether the reader chooses to call both Byzantine or both Arabic, the workmen being certainly Byzantine, but forced to the invention of new forms by their Arabian masters, and bringing these forms into use in whatever parts of the world they were employed. In this first manner of Venetian architecture, together with vestiges as remains of the Christian Roman, I shall devote the first division of the following inquiry. The examples remaining of it consist of three noble churches, those of Torcello, Morano, and the greater part of St. Mark's, and about ten or eleven fragments of palaces. Paragraph 32. To this style succeeds a transitional one, of a character much more distinctly Arabian. The shafts become more slender, and the arches consistently pointed instead of round. Certain other changes, not to be enumerated in a sentence, taking place in the capitals and mouldings. This style is almost exclusively secular. It was natural for the Venetians to imitate the beautiful detail of the Arabian dwelling-house, while they would with reluctance adopt those of the mosque for Christian churches. I have not succeeded in fixing limiting dates for this style. It appears in part contemporary with the Byzantine manner, but outlives it. Its position is, however, fixed by the central date, 1180, that of the elevation of the granite shafts of the piazza, whose capitals are the two most important pieces of detail in this transitional style in Venice. Examples of its application to domestic buildings exist in almost every street of the city, and will form the subject of the second division of the following essay. Paragraph 33. The Venetians were always ready to receive lessons in art from their enemies, else there had been no Arab work in Venice. But their especial dread and hatred of the Lombards appears to have long prevented them from receiving the influence of the art which that people had introduced on the mainland of Italy. Nevertheless, during the practice of the two styles above distinguished, a peculiar and very primitive condition of pointed Gothic had arisen in ecclesiastical architecture. It appears to be a feeble reflection of the Lombard Arab forms, which were attaining perfection upon the continent, and would probably, if left to itself, have been soon merged in the Venetian Arab school, with which it had from the first so close a fellowship, that it will be found difficult to distinguish the Arabian ogives from those which seem to have been built under this great early Gothic influence. The churches of St. Giacomo del Orio, San Giovanni and Borogor, the Carmine, and one or two more, furnished the only important examples of it. But in the 13th century, the Franciscans and Dominicans introduced from the continent their morality and their architecture, already a distinct Gothic, curiously developed from Lombardic and Northern German forms. And the influence of the principles exhibited in the vast churches of St. Paul and the Frari began rapidly to affect the Venetian Arab school. Still, the two systems never became united. The Venetian policy repressed the power of the church, and the Venetian artists resisted its example. And thenceforward the architecture of the city becomes divided into ecclesiastical and civil, the one an ungraceful yet powerful form of the Western Gothic, common to the whole peninsula, and only showing Venetian sympathies in the adoption of certain characteristic moldings, the other a rich, luxuriant, 
an entirely original Gothic, formed from the Venetian Arab by the influence of the Dominican and Franciscan architecture, and especially by the engrafting upon the Arab forms of the most novel features of the Franciscan work, its traceries. These various forms of Gothic, the distinctive architecture of Venice, chiefly represented by the churches of St. John and Paul, the Frari, and St. Stefano on the ecclesiastical side, and by the Ducal Palace, and the other principal Gothic palaces on the secular side, will be the subject of the third division of this essay. End of chapter 1, part 2. Recording by Todd.